Hello, listeners. This is Emily Ann from Democrats for Education Reform, and you're listening to Ed Chats from Defer's media team. From its inception, our nation's public education system has been rooted in inequity, spanning lines of race, gender, gender identity, class, sexual orientation, native language, zip code, and disability. In efforts to change the status quo, education thought leaders and political minds are revolutionizing the education space. Every month, we sit down with a few of these leaders and discuss what's being done right now to advance a high-quality, equitable education system for every student. On this week's episode, we sat down with Tim DeRoche, president of Available to All, an organization dedicated to ensuring that public schools are available to all students on equal terms. We talk with DeRoche about his new brief on eliminating education redlining, the latest installment in Education Reform Now's Public School Choice series, which features a collection of briefs updated weekly from guest authors. You can find the link to the series as well as the piece featured in today's episode in our show notes. Okay, so I do just want to start by thanking you for taking the time and talking with me today about your piece. Yeah, I'm so happy to be here. Yeah. Kind of going through it, the overarching concept um, of this article, it's time to make open enrollment a civil rights issue, kind of focuses on the concept of open enrollment. So can you give our listeners kind of an overview of how open enrollment plays into the conversation of civil rights when we discuss public schooling? Yeah, so so I'm the I'm the head, the founder of this organization called Available to All, and we we're really interested in 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 defending this idea of equal access to public schools, right? So this noble mission of the public schools that we're going to serve all comers, that we're going to be um, equally available to all American kids. That's kind of a bedrock principle of the public school movement, and I think. When you look carefully at how our current system works, you can see that the public schools are not equally open to all, right? That there are certain schools that are very coveted, um, that are high performing, and that many, many people want to attend, and that not everyone can attend, right? And the way we mostly allocate seats in public schools in this country is by geography. Um, so we have a we assign children to schools based on where they live. And so the schools you have access to in this country are largely determined, right, by where you live. And the schools you don't have access to are determined by where you live. And so by assigning kids to schools based on where they live, we just get all of these downstream effects, right? Which is number one, we get the fact that um, uh, our schools are very divided along class lines, right? And because class is uh, correlated with race in this country, that means the schools are divided along racial lines. So you get very unequal um, uh, opportunities for a high quality education. Secondly, you get distortions in the real estate market. You get limits in in terms of, I wanna go to this public school, but I'm not allowed to go there, right? And so you get limits in kind of kids and families finding the schools that are the best fit for them. 
Um, and, um, and then you can also get the fact that, that school districts um, have to enforce these residential assignment policies. And so sometimes they're hiring private investigators to follow kids home from school. So all these downstream effects of this residential assignment. One way that we advocate for getting out of this is open enrollment. And we're especially fans of true open enrollment. What I mean by that is that a lot of states have these open enrollment statutes, but they typically have lots and lots of loopholes in them, right? So districts can participate if they want to, right? These are voluntary programs. Um, they can accept kids from outside the districts if they want to, right? Well, many of the best districts don't want to, and they, they can use the voluntary policy as a way to kind of cherry pick their kids. So we advocate for true open enrollment and open enrollment uh, reform um, without loopholes, getting rid of as many of the loopholes as you can. And so open enrollment to us is, a, is a, the idea of public school choice, right? That uh, a family should have a right to choose the public school that is that they believe is the right fit for their kids. We believe that's very, very important. And we see that as a civil rights issue. Yeah. And you kind of emphasize this issue of educational redlining. Um, so what specific changes do you propose to open enrollment in order to provide more equal opportunities to students? Yeah. On the redlining angle, it's important to notice here, like, like we've done this before, right? We, we have allocated um, access to government services. We've determined eligibility for valuable government services by where you live before. And that was what we did during the redlining era of like in, in the New Deal era um, during the 30s. There were these government programs to provide mortgage assistance, housing assistance to families during the Great Depression. Well, what the government did is they drew maps. They had to allocate, you know, they didn't have, they couldn't serve everybody. So they had to draw these, they, drew the, they had to allocate those services and that assistance, that aid, and they drew these maps and they said, okay, if you live in a desirable area, you're eligible for aid. And, and what that did was it, it, it redlined, it, they shaded on these maps, there were red and yellow areas shaded um, that, that basically showed who was not eligible for assistance. And these were parts of town which were largely low income right? Lar lots of uh, people of color, lots of immigrants, lots of working class folks, and they were excluded from getting this government aid. And so we have a very similar system right now for schools that no one talks about, right? Redlining, we're sort of in this, this uh, era where everyone's denouncing redlining, and rightfully so. We made redlining illegal with the Federal Housing uh, Act of 1968 with several court rulings, but educational redlining, where we tell people they can't attend certain schools because you live, you don't live where we think you should live or you live on the wrong side of the tracks, that still goes on. And so open enrollment is a way to um, uh, move away from that system, right? Um, I mean, I always tell people I'm working towards a future 20 years from now, 30 years from now, where no child could be turned away from a public school because of their address. And that that happens right now. True open enrollment would say, hey, you can't use someone's address to deny them access to a school. Now, that's a ways out. Right. That's a long way down the road. But we can move in that direction by reforming open enrollment, by requiring districts to um, accept open enrollment applications by requiring them to hold lotteries for open spaces, 
Um, one of the provisions that we really advocate for is a, a make room provision. So if you are a public school and you're turning kids away, you have to hold 15% of your seats, say, 15% of your seats for kids outside your zone or your district, right? So this is a way to protect the neighborhood um, nature of schools, but also say, hey, you can't just operate a school for wealthy people who, who have enough money to buy a home in this, you know, very gerrymandered um, uh, boundary that's been drawn by the government. And do you, so when talking about these provisions, have you seen at all in your work kind of examples of states or districts that have successfully implemented any of these open enrollment policies and maybe any lessons that can be learned from their practices? Yeah, there are a couple. So Wisconsin and Arizona have significant, you know, have kind of quietly seen this open enrollment revolution where a lot, there's a lot of cross district transfers. I think a couple of things. Those laws are not perfect. You know, in, in both Wisconsin and Arizona, the receiving district, right, they have to take the application, but there's a loophole built into both of those laws where the where they can just say no to a, a child that has a disability, right? We don't have space in our, in our special ed program. Um, no, and this is categorical. This is categorical. So no matter how minimal the services that that kid requires, the district can say, no, we just don't want it. And we've seen lots of examples of kids who are um, high functioning kids who would do perfectly well at a school, but the, the school is like, well, it's gonna be harder to educate them. They might Their test scores might not be as high, let's turn them away. So I think putting procedural protections in place for kids with disabilities is important. Um, I think um, another thing that's really important um, that a number of commentators have mentioned is just making sure that money follows the kid, right? So especially with uh, kids with disabilities, it might take a little bit more to educate them. If you ensure that their, their uh, special ed money follows the kid to the new school, to the new district, then the district loses the ability to say, oh, we just don't have the resources to serve that child. So making sure that as much of the allocation of that kid's dollars follows to the new district, I think is, is another one that's really important. Um, and, you know, the other one I want to point out is this space available exception. So this is a major issue with open enrollment laws. It sounds eminently reasonable, right? You have a right to apply to this school if there is space available. The problem with it, though, is that that space available exception is what creates the geographic preference, right? Like we're going to prefer people who live in this zone and only people, if, if you don't live in the zone, you only can come in if there's space available. That creates the geographic preference, which creates the incentive for families to, to crowd into the zone, which creates the distortion in the real estate prices as real estate prices go up. And you're sometimes you're paying $300,000 extra to live in one of these coveted zones. So that causes, you know, that causes the inequity. And I think we need to start creating this right, you know, more procedural protections for kids who don't live within the zone, right? I have a, my child has a right to apply to this school and a right to engage, you know, to be a participant in a lottery to get one of those 15% of seats that are, you know, that are kind of being held back for kids outside of the zone. I think that's one of the loopholes that we want to move over want to get away from is this space available exception and finding ways to do that that doesn't totally disrupt the the school community I think is important. And do you find it at all challenging to have any of these conversations when you're trying to combat this 
what it seems widely adopted belief that education is the great equalizer without taking into account yeah. any of the education redlining or deeper systematic issues that deal with ed reform. Yeah, I think I think it is a big it's a big issue that that our country hasn't fully confronted yet. And I think um, um, and it's something that transcends politics, right? There are um, Republicans who benefit from these educational redlining policies. There are Democrats who do. But I think if you look at the right, the, the original mission of the public schools, the common school movement, that, that, that public education would be the great equalizer, like you just said, um, it can't do that if we're assigning kids to schools based on where they live, which is correlated with their wealth, which is correlated with their race. The, the system becomes a way to reinforce and, uh, the social inequities, right? And it, it becomes a way, you know, everybody complains that, that there isn't as much social mobility, class mobility anymore in the United States. And I think one function, one reason for that is that we have a public school system that reinforces these uh, inequities and makes it really hard for lower income folks to access high quality public schools. And so as a country, we just, we haven't yet been willing to confront that. And I, and I think it's hard. I, I have a lot of sympathy for parents um, you know, when you buy a home in a certain place, expecting access to a certain, you know, that it guarantees you access to a certain school. That is how our system's been structured. And I think a lot of parents play that game. Um, most parents, once they, once their kids age out of the system, even if they played that game, they'll tell me, Hey, yeah, it shouldn't work like this. But, but the folks who you talk to who have a third grader and they just bought their home and let's say they stretched financially to buy that home and maybe they got a mortgage that's $300,000 more and they're really stretching to pay their mortgage and they, they bought it solely to have exclusive access to that school. I have a tremendous amount of sympathy for those parents, but we can't run our educational system into the ground um, just to protect the interests of, of the short-term interests of those parents. Like we need to be thinking long-term about whether the public education system is fulfilling the role in our society that it is supposed to fill, being the great equalizer, giving everybody a fair shot at the American dream. And, and it's just not doing that right now. And it's, it's not doing that because of these policies that assign kids to schools based on where they live. Absolutely. And it sounds like a very common sense argument. So my follow-up is what potential challenges or objections do you anticipate from proponents of the status quo against adopting open enrollment? And how would you respond to those concerns? Yeah. I mean, one, one argument I've heard repeatedly is this is going to lead to white flight, right? Um, that, that, you know, if you open up these inner city schools that are protected by attendance zones, you open them up to the lower income folks or the middle income folks, the, the working class folks, that that these these folks are going to flee to the suburbs or are going to flee to private schools and you know that may happen to some extent but you know i just want to point out that was an argument against desegregation right like these kids are going to flee these families are going to flee like we had to open up the schools to children of all races no matter what happened as a result of that we had to do that it was a civil rights issue um the other thing I hear is a lot of defense of the neighborhood school. We have to defend the neighborhood school. And what I like to point out is we all send our kids to neighborhood daycare centers. We shop at neighborhood grocery stores. I use the neighborhood dry cleaners. And I don't need 
um, the government to draw a map to keep out my fellow citizens in order to do that, right? That is not, um, that's just not, you know, people on the right should be skeptical of that because you're empowering government to keep give, give certain certain privileges to certain people and others to not the government's picking winners and losers so i think people on the right should be skeptical but i think people on the left should also be skeptical when you have the government kind of protecting the interests of the wealthier classes that that is something that folks on the left should be very uneasy about and um i think as americans regardless of political party, we should be very wary of these policies um, and we should be giving them a second hard look. So what is your main takeaway that you hope that readers will take away from this piece in terms of the future of education reform and maybe reframing some of the ways that we're having these debates? Yeah, I think um, I think the I think there's an opportunity, um, you know, um, there's an opportunity on the left to recapture some moral high ground, right? Um, and I think there is frustration in the voting populace about the um, sort of the top-down nature of the school systems. And I think um, by defending um, equal educational access as a civil rights issue, it's a way for the, the left to potentially capture the moral high ground and, and, and appeal to voters. Um, and I think we have a chance to do something that would be good for our kids, right? And that would be good for the future of our country by moving away from these strict assignment policies based on where you live. I just think there's a huge opportunity um, to move in a positive direction for our country and to have a positive vision of how low-income kids can, can access the best public education. Absolutely. I fully agree. And this is kind of a bigger picture question kind of following um, the previous. So how do you envision the role of public education in the United States and what steps should be taken in your opinion to fulfill the promise of providing equal opportunities to all students? Yeah, I think I think we need to get beyond some of the the contentious debates of the past. Right. Uh, I think we need to move beyond them. And I think um, I think a, a good starting place would just be to admit that equal opportunity, the system right now is not designed for equal opportunity, right? It is not designed to see um, schools through a civil rights lens. We have this kind of top-down system that assigns kids to schools. And the the role of the of the system should be to be truly open, right? For, for it to be a truly public system, then the public schools have to be open to the public. And right now, so many of the schools are not open to the public. And so, you know, people people ask me all the time, well, how is this going to affect achievement? Like, and, and what's going to happen to the performance of those schools? And 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 academic performance is very important. And I, and I, I believe in measuring academic performance. Um, but there's, a, there's an issue that comes before that, which is just it, this critical role that public education plays in our in our social contract right like in order for people to believe that they have a fair shot at the American dream they would need to feel like they have an equal shot at getting a good education and we've designed the system so that they don't have that equal shot right um and so I think we need to think about that civil rights issue of 
there are good public schools. There are high performing public schools that lots of people want to go to. Why are we reserving the right to go to those schools to only the politically powerful, only the people who have money? That is a disastrous way to run this sector of our economy, this portion of our government that is so important for the social contract. It, you know, it, it's, it just leads to people being cynical over time. Like, like that system is supposed to be the great equalizer. And yet it's, it's allocating, um, the coveted public seats, the co seats in coveted public schools, it's it's allocating them exclusively to high-income people who have who have political power. That's just not how it's supposed to work. No, at all. And we've seen it historically in multiple different avenues, aside from enrollment. And uh, definitely, it's something that we need to be discussing and figuring out how to eradicate instead of trying to find stop gaps that are temporary and maybe not as helpful as they should be. Exactly, exactly. So in conclusion, what are your key thoughts or takeaways from this piece that you really want to make sure are highlighted with readers? Yeah, I think I think first of all, just thinking about um, open enroll, like thinking about access to public schools as a civil rights issue, right? I mean, we used to do that. That's what Brown v. Board of Education was about. Does Linda Brown have a right to attend this school or not? Um and we've kind of forgotten that. We've gotten all distracted with issues of funding and um, testing and um, um, all sorts of other things. Um, but this issue of who is allowed to attend a coveted public school and who is not allowed, that is a civil rights act issue. And it's something that we need to be thinking about because it's not, those schools are not open right now. They are not open to all as they are supposed to be. Um, secondly, I think educational redlining and thinking about how similar our current system is to the old redlining system in the housing market that we've all disavowed and we've moved away from and we've made illegal. Why aren't we making educational redlining illegal? Um, and then third, open enrollment, right, as a potential solution and just getting rid of barriers, getting rid of loophole, loopholes in open enrollment laws, and then especially thinking about innovative solutions like this idea of making room, right? Like, let's reserve 15% of the seats in this, in this school for kids who don't live in this zone or in this district. Um, I think there are ways we can move forward that will move us in a new direction and will not necessarily upset the whole apple cart, but will move us slowly away from this geographic based assignment and will start to open up the schools and, and provide more and better opportunities for, for low income kids. Amazing. And thank you so much for giving us some of your time today to talk about this piece. Thanks so much, Emily. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me.